0: We're continuing on in our study of church history, our survey of church history, and of course we've stepped into this, this discussion of um, early church heresies that um, sort of infiltrated or found their way into the life of the early church. And of course we've made the point, and, and of course this point is made other places in Scripture, Solomon makes this point in Ecclesiastes very, very um, clearly and, and poetically about there being nothing new under the sun. Uh, these strands of heretical teaching and thinking, uh, they find their way into our world today and into, into the church today. Um, so, the reason why we want to study these as, is not just because um, it coincides with or is part and parcel to a, a study of the history of the church, but because we want to um, be mindful of and discerning about strands of heretical teaching that can take root whether or not they take root in our hearts and minds in their full-orbed sense to where we become all-out heretics of a sort, or whether they take root in sort of shades and nuance to where we just find ourselves compromised in certain areas. Whether compromised in our, our living or in just the way that we're communicating the gospel, um, it, we, can, we can be compromised by uh, strands of, of what have their roots in all-out heresy. We can be compromised in those ways, and we can we can be uh, vulnerable to those things if we're not aware, if we're not on guard, if we're not um, remaining faithful to the truth of Scripture and remaining accountable to others uh, in the life of the church to, um, to help us discern uh, what is true and right from God's Word and to stay on that path. So, this is important um, discussions that we're having and, and looking back, but also... <laughs> recognizing the strands that find their way into uh, our day and time even today um, and and really in some very pronounced ways. We talked first about the heresy of Gnosticism and who remembers anything at all about Gnosticism that we discussed? What, What in essence are some of the attributes or elements of the Gnostic heresy that found its way into the early church? Yeah, there's like a, there's a secret mystery that, that, that is the way of salvation, and it can only be revealed by the enlightened ones. And that salvation is found in this secret knowledge. Gnosis is the, the core word for Gnosticism. And, and uh, there was a dualism as well associated with Gnosticism, Christian Gnosticism in particular, where you had the, the, the God of the Old Testament as one who was a different God than the God of the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament wasn't even the God of the New Testament that we understand. Um, so a very, very aberrant view of, of God himself, of Christ. The, the Christology was, was not uh, uh, orthodox Christology in that um, the incarnation that God was fully God and fully man simultaneously. Um, e- uh, matter or the physical realm or physical things were inherently evil. And spiritual things were inherently good, so you can see how the idea of the incarnation would not logically make sense in that system because you could not blend what is inherently evil with inherently good and say that it's God. Um, so things like that would be um, characteristics of Gnosticism. Some of the some of the workings out of that it would be different. It would be sort of these different extremes. On one extreme, you would have a. a an, um, sort of an extreme asceticism, an an extreme version of self-denial because the idea is to be truly enlightened and truly spiritual, you deny the flesh because the flesh is evil. So it resulted in all kinds of self-deprivation physically um, in order to achieve or attain some higher level of spirituality. The opposite extreme outbirth of that would be an extreme hedonism because if spirituality is the key to salvation, and the physical world cannot be intermingled with the spiritual world, then it doesn't matter what you do in the physical world. Because my objective for salvation, for attaining salvation, is purely spiritual. So my physical outworking of of life, there's no attachment to what I believe with what I do. What I do is just what I do, and it's all... Evil but my enlightenment is what saves me. my spiritual knowledge is what saves me. So that would be kind of two extreme outworkings of this, this belief system. Last time we were together, we talked about Marcion and Marcionism. Who remembers some of the elements of Marcionism that we talked about? I wanted to get rid of the Old Testament: Yeah, he, he, he didn't like the Old Testament. In fact, he had uh, elements of dualism as well. He had some elements of Gnosticism in his belief. Um, but he believed that the Old Testament God that's revealed in the Jewish scriptures is an evil God and is prone toward violence and uh, tribalism and all things evil and is an altogether different God than what we see revealed in the New Testament in Christ. And this God that was revealed in the New Testament uh, was sort of revealed, he was hidden until he was revealed in Christ. So the, this God, though he existed, was not revealed to us until Christ came. And when Christ came, he did not come in human form, but he appeared as a human. So there was elements of aberrant Christology even in his belief system. Uh, What do you remember about his belief about the scriptures in addition to um, just throwing out the Old Testament? There's New Testament implications for his scriptures as well. Do you remember that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're going to throw out the Old Testament, because the Old Testament, uh, it, it basically is about a, a, an evil God, a sub-God, if you will, um, then your, your, your scriptures are not going to include that, but then you get to the New Testament, and you have lots of references to the Old Testament in the New Testament, so you've got to do something about that as well. So, there was uh, basically a truncated version of Luke's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and John were thrown out because they they were they had too much Hebrew reference, too much Judaistic reference. This was a, this is a relatively anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish uh, way of thinking as well it, it, as, it, as it as it was fully developed. So you had this abbreviated or abridged version of Luke's Gospel and some edited versions of Paul's epistles, and that was the Marcion Bible. Yeah. What was the time for on Marcian? Um, the the um, mid to latter part of the second century. So uh, dates would be, let me go back to my notes here, I'm kind of skimming through. Um, he was in Rome, for example, um, and became a part of the church in Rome between 135 and 139 AD. He was excommunicated from that church in 144 and started his own thing that became very, very widespread. That was another thing about it. I mean, these both of these heresies, Gnosticism and Marcionism, It's not that they were sort of these passing, you know, flash-in-the-pan kind of fancies. These are things that took root. In fact, going back to Gnosticism, and we talked about this before, but there is a lot of New Testament uh, um, references addressing Gnostic belief and Gnostic heresy, even in the scriptures themselves. Marcion, though, uh, once he was excommunicated from the church in Rome in 144, I mean, he started his own church, and it, it had about a century full century run, and it grew, and it was organized, and it was, you know, effective in in that sense of, you know, measuring effectiveness. He he viewed the God of the Old Testament as a different God, okay. so yes. To answer your question, yes. However, you got to draw a line between the two, and it was a very Gnostic uh, view. He even referred to the Old Testament God as a demiurge, which is a Gnostic term. So, a very distinct um, you know line drawn in the sand between the God of the Old Testament, and yes, it's 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 evil, and there's. There's God. The God, the, the the true God is is a God of love and of forgiveness and of salvation. Um, but the God of the Old Testament is quite the opposite. The reason I ask it, it just sounded very familiar to a lot of step up especially people who are maybe maybe not raised in the church but have brushed yeah you know the church. they've been through Bible school somewhere along the line and they you know we're going to focus a lot on that today okay, good. a lot. Um, I'm a little, I'm actually a little nervous about it, to be quite honest. Um, so, Kevin DeYoung wrote this about Marcion, kind of a, a in, in an article that he was that he wrote. Um, it was a, it's a good summary statement, particularly about the the Marcion, uh, Bible, the Marcion scriptures. He said, when all the cutting and pasting was finished, Marcion had the Christianity he wanted: a God of goodness and nothing else, a message of inspiring moral uplift. A Bible that does away with the uncomfortable bits about God's wrath and hell—that's essentially what Marcion uh, did with the Scriptures, and he built an entire, you know, movement uh, for about a century in the history of the Church. That was very, um, very effective in its organization and its in its um, persuading of of adherence to his system of belief. Um. Obviously, we talked about some of the passages of Scripture that are uh, really difficult to um, line up with this this view of Marcionism. You have John 5, 46-47, where Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Of course, Marcion conveniently threw out John. So, you know, that's, that's how you take care of that little... Uh, Uh, point of conflict or contention. Um, You have Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. This is Christ himself speaking. Uh, Abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then you have, of course, the Apostle Paul sort of articulating a definition of his mission of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he's referring, obviously, to the Old Testament scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So just some reference points there, not to to go in too much depth about that again, but just drawing our attention back to this this heresy of of Marcionism, um, another uh, quote from Kevin DeYoung that will kind of be our jumping off point here today. He said, uh, The idea of recasting Christianity for a new day in softer, gentler hues more focused on the life of Jesus instead of the death of Jesus, sounds familiar, does it not? Listen to some of the country's most popular preachers or to some of the loudest voices in the emergent conversation or to some of the best-selling Christian books and you will find that Marcionism is alive and well. So that launches us now into what I want to sort of tease out a little bit further today. Um, Marcionism being alive and well in our day and time and even possibly strands of it or shades of it being alive and well amongst people that you would be rubbing shoulders with, that you would be you know, having contact with in, in our community or, or you know, having uh, some type of friendship with or association with, um, and, and how, how we need to be thinking about this. And, this is t- and now it's time for us to go to work. Okay? I'm, this is not you know, Richard's going to lecture you and tell you, what you need to do, because I'm, I'm trying to work this out myself, and I think that this is an ongoing process for us to really think carefully uh, about this, not just in terms of um, the knowledge that we want to make sure we acquire or reaffirm and lock in on, but the application of truth to our lives in the most practical day-to-day interactions with with others. So that's, that's the, what I want to try to uh, do some work in for us this morning, or with us together this morning. Kevin DeYoung mentioned in this quote, he said, listen to some of the country's most popular preachers, or to some of the loudest voices in the emergent conversation. He references this emergent conversation, which, which is a term, sometimes you might have heard of it referred to as the emergent church. This is something that kind of came onto the scene uh, in, in in the 2000s, if you will, um, but it, he, he's referencing this um, particularly as it relates to ideas of this Martian heresy. And to give you a little bit of a flavor of this, and what, I, what I'd like to try and do is I'd like to try to just provide some, some reference points from different representative people. And then I want us to kind of start you know, um, tying this together into what does this mean for us? What are we supposed to do with this? How, are we, how, how, how then should we live, as Francis Schaeffer would say? You know, what, what, what's the point? Okay? So, so think of this emergent conversation reference from Kevin DeYoung regarding Marcionism and the New Mood, is the title of his article. Uh, one prominent voice in this emergent conversation, this emergent church movement, um, is Brian McLaren. Has anybody ever heard of Brian McLaren? Yeah, well-known um, uh, writer and, and former pastor and speaker. Um, and he's, he's an author. This is, this is, this is uh, sort of a little bio about him. He's an author and speaker and activist and public theologian. That's, that's kind of a cool job, being a public theologian. He's a former college English teacher and pastor he is a passionate advocate for quote a new kind of Christianity, just, generous, and working with people of all faiths for the common good. So that gives you that's from that's the bio from his own website. So that gives you a sense of you know a little sense of of where he's coming from. Um, he wrote a book. Uh, it was published in 2010, and. Tapping into this quote from his own bio, from his own website, he's he's an advocate for a new kind of Christianity, he wrote a book in 2010 called A New Kind of Christianity. Ten Questions That Are Transforming the Faith. That's the title of the book. Um, And again, Kevin DeYoung has been a great resource for me in some of this. He he wrote a, a book review of this, and so he summarized some of the points, and of course, I would always advocate, you know, first first source documentation of things, but I'm trusting Kevin DeYoung as an as an um, an accurate or reliable uh, uh, reference point for this this material. Okay, so I've not read the book, is what I'm trying to say, but I trust Kevin DeYoung's. It's a very thorough review, but he just I'm just pulling out the the, the ten questions that are part of this book, the ten questions that are transforming the faith, a new kind of Christianity. Here are the questions, and then there's some, some descriptive um, um, narrative around the questions that are part quotes from the book and part um, Kevin DeYoung's just sort of you know summary. Question number one: The narrative question. What is the overarching storyline of the Bible? Makes sense, right? I mean, what's what's this about? What's the story about? What, where's what's your source material for this story? <coughs> For McLaren, the familiar storyline of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, with heaven and hell as a result, is a grotesque Greco-Roman distortion of the biblical narrative. God the creator, liberator, reconciler is the real storyline. Okay? Question two. Now I'm not going to elaborate on these yet. Just, just stay with me. So That's kind of his commentary on the narrative question, what is the overarching storyline of the Bible? Question two, the authority question. How should the Bible be understood? Not as a constitution, argues McLaren, with laws and rules and arguments about who's right and wrong. Rather, we go to the Bible as a community library where internal consistency is not presumed and we learn by conversation. Question number three, the God question. Is God violent? Believers used to think so, but we ought to grow in maturity from fearing a violent tribal God to partnering with a Christ-like God. Now think about Marcionism and a view of God that is like this versus this. And you start to see those, those strands kind of emerge, right? We need to view God. We need to grow in our maturity from fearing a violent tribal God. That's Old Testament God. Uh, to partnering with a Christ-like God. Doesn't that sound really good? I want to partner with God. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. Um, question four, the Jesus question. Who is Jesus and why is he important? Jesus is never violent and does not condemn. He does not come to save people from hell. Jesus says McLaren is, a, is peace-loving and identifies with the weak and oppressed. Again, very Marcion-esque in its its view of Christ. Uh, Question number five, the gospel question. What is the gospel? It is not a message about how to get saved. The gospel is the announcement of, quote, a new kingdom. This is McLaren now. A new kingdom, a new way of life, and a new way of peace that carried good news to all people of every religion, end quote. Question six, the church question. What do we do about the church? Churches, in whatever form and whatever we call them, exist to form people of Christ-like love. This is the church's primary calling, to form people who live in the way of love, the way of peacemaking. So very much a Jesus as example kind of understanding. Question seven, the sex question. Can we find a way to address human sexuality without fighting about it? We need to stop hating gay people and welcome them fully into the life of the church. I like that statement, that that's, that's, the, that's our choices. Either we hate them, or we. it's just interesting how that argumentation plays out. The, quote, sexually other, end quote, may be defective in traditional religion, but they are loved and included in a new kind of Christianity. Question eight, the future question. Can we find a better way of viewing the future? No more, quote, soul sort, end quote. He uses the term soul sort. In other words, sorting out people's souls. That's what he's referring to. No more soul sort universe where our team goes to heaven and the bad guys go to hell. The future is open, inviting our participation. In the end, God's mercy will triumph and all shall be well. Number nine, the pluralism question. How should followers of Jesus relate to people of other religions? This is a quote now from McLaren's book. Christianity has a nauseating, infuriating, depressing record when it comes to encountering people of other religions. There is not us them insider there is not us them insider outsider jesus accepted everyone and so should we and number 10 the what do we do now question how can we translate our quest into action the human quest for god has known many stages those in the more mature stages of the quest should gently invite others to grow into fuller maturity but without being divisive you can even hear some Gnostic ideology in that, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a wisdom, a more mature wisdom to be gained. In other words, if you keep on this quest, you will attain to this kind of understanding that he is advocating. <clears throat> Another writer, Peter Enns. He's a, the um, professor of biblical studies at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. He wrote a book in 2014, so he 2010 McLaren published his book in 2014, a book entitled, The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It. This professor, uh, in chapter 2 of this book, he makes the standard Richard Dawkins-style case that the God of the Old Testament is a genocidal maniac who enjoys killing women and children and in the flood just about every living thing on the planet. All standard evangelical attempts to explain God's behavior aren't going to cut it either. Inns even draws a comparison between the killing of the Canaanites and the colonization of the Americas when indigenous populations of the West Indies were wiped out, in the name of God, of course. But don't fear. Inns says, because of all this, because of all this isn't really a problem once you understand, excuse me, don't fear, In says, because all of this isn't really a problem once you understand one simple fact. The real God didn't do any of these things. The Israelites just said he did. The Old Testament narrative are just standard polemic, are just the standard polemic of ancient tribal people who didn't know any other way to describe their God. The Israelites had no choice, ends right, ends writes. Quote, "That's just how it was done. That was their cultural language. God lets His children tell the story end quote." Then you go forward to Rob Bell. You've probably heard of Rob Bell. He's written some pretty provocative and controversial books. Uh, he was former founding pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Granville, Michigan. Um, and this is the bio from his own website, so I'm just reading from his own website. He's the author of 10 books, including the New York York Times bestseller, uh, What We Talk About When We Talk About God, The Zim Zim of Love, Love Wins, and What is the Bible. His podcast, called The Robcast, was named by iTunes Best of 2015. He's been profiled in The New Yorker, toured with Oprah, and in 2011, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He has a regular show at Largo, a legendary comedy and music club in Los Angeles, where he lives with his wife, Kristen, and their three kids. That's an interesting sentence at the end. It sounds like he and his wife and his three kids live at Largo, this legendary comedy and music club, but I don't think that's what they meant to say. So this is Rob Bell. So in 2017, again, we have 2010, McLaren's book. You have 2014, Peter N's book. 2017, Rob Bell wrote a book entitled, What is the Bible?, how an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything. Bell promises to teach, this is just a summary, Bell promises to teach his eager audience how to read, by the way, this is a summary from someone who is critiquing the book, okay, I'm not, I'm, full disclosure, this particular author is not uh, a proponent of, of Rob Bell <laughs> by any stretch. But I think he's an honest honest commentator. Bell promises to teach his audience how to read the Bible in a whole new way. And he he references the pages that you can cite in the book. What he does, in fact, is merely repackage in modern form the same old ideas stemming from the early days of higher criticism. In the 18th century, leading churchmen, such as Friedrich Schleiermacher and Walter Rauschenbusch, I need a German pronunciation key here, um, successfully floated that the Bible was a human book, written by men to promote their particular agendas and views about everything from life to God. This new way of reading the Bible led to theological liberalism. Later, Rudolf Bultmann made demythologizing the Scriptures popular. The idea was that most of the Bible was compromised of inaccurate—excuse uh, me—was comprised of inaccurate myths and stories told from a human perspective. Yet while these stories were untrue, there were lessons and principles that could be gained from the fabrications. The task of the Bible reader, uh, the task of the Bible reader, is to find the meaning behind the myths. Combining the higher critics with Bultmann, Bell has introduced an old way of reading the Bible to a new generation, without any reference to the past and the devastation it caused. So again, nothing new under the sun. Bell is basically repackaging the higher critics from a past century that did the very same thing. But you will note that in all of these different cases, there is this these strands of Marcionism that are running through it, right? That we need to do something different with the scriptures, with particular emphasis on the Old Testament but with also augmentation to the new testament and what is the driving rationale for it aside from an intellectual rationale of higher criticism and and you know saying that these are not historical or you know some type of you know genre you know, ex, extreme genre mythological genre sort of classification i'm talking about what is the driving motivation that would prompt them personally to go down this path what do you think escape judgment that's right that's right. It's all about looking at the Old Testament and going that that is not that 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 is not the God that we want, right? I mean that that is not the God that we want to talk about or that we want to promote. I mean, who wants to hear about a God who is wrathful and judgmental? Who who would who would for example, even if this were scientifically true or possible, would for example, judge the entire human race in a worldwide flood save only eight people. I mean, who, 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 what kind of God is that? You have another uh, movement called Red Letter Christianity, which focuses all of its, you know, doctrine and theology and practice on the red, the red words in the New Testament, of course, right? Just the, the words of Jesus himself, but it's really oriented toward a, um, Social gospel, Jesus as example um, type of theology. It's 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 very narrow in its scope, um, in, in terms of its application, it's really um, really used a lot to justify basically propping up um, sort of a certain kind of political agenda, political social agenda um, is oftentimes how it's used. That this is you know Jesus. This is how Jesus would want us to live kind of thing but really what they're advocating is more of a you know social construct of a political agenda. What do they do with that Jesus telling the Pharisees you're a brood of vipers and I mean like I mean those are red letters. They I mean <laughs> they 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 would have an answer. Okay. They would have an answer. These are very uh typically very um intellectual, intellectually driven people. Um and so they're not you know they're not coming at this in in, in sort of unsophisticated or unthoughtful ways. Um, so, so Marcion was a very intelligent man. So, uh, I don't know specifically that the answer to that question, but I'm pretty confident they would have an answer. Well, because you referenced someone else who said Jesus accepted everyone. He didn't. Right. But I mean, Jesus even in his red letters did not accept everyone. I mean, right. There were those that he condemned. But... He didn't accept the Pharisees and the Scribes. Yeah. He didn't accept the money changers in the temple. Yeah, he was pretty judgmental in certain cases, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that that's the thing is that is that um, and and this is, I think this is where I, I'm I'm intentionally sort of laying this before us for two reasons. Primarily, one is to just provide some some tactical reference points to this kind of thinking in the modern day. Three different published works with. These different points of emphasis that are—you can go, you know, buy them if you want to spend the money, or find them somewhere, or download them, whatever. You can go check them out yourself, or you can read about them online, whatever. Um, but they're—they're they're not hidden. They're not obscure. Um, And—and there, there, there's a. These are representative of a very influential strain of thinking in the life of. Um. I'm not going to say the church. I'm going to say people who would ascribe to um, some some version of Christian faith um, and some profession of Christian faith of some kind. Um, but, but all of this, so one reason is to provide context. The other reason is to provoke you. Is to, is to provoke you. Like some of this, do you not feel a little bit of like, Stop it! I mean, what's wrong with you? I mean, you not kind of have that sense of like, what you want to react by saying that's just idiotic. I mean, have you not read this? You not? I mean, there's a, there's a certain provocation that we need to contend with as God's people as well, right? We need to we need to be thinking carefully in very practical terms, not in theoretical terms, but in practical terms. What does contending for the faith once delivered Look like. Really look like. Because if we stay provoked, my concern for me, maybe not for you, maybe you guys are much more self-controlled than I am. My, my concern for me is if I stay provoked, like that's the core of my emotion about these things, I'm not going to be contending for the faith in a way that's honoring to the Lord in terms of my treatment of other people and my... my even confronting other people with the right kind of attitude. So we need to be thoughtful, we need to be challenged, we need to have understanding, but we also need to wrestle with how do we how do we deal with this? Both individually and and outwardly. Richard, I think you've got to let your love for them overcome your righteous anger and seeing their, seeing all their faults. Like when, when we're out witnessing, it's easy to get the argument. We always try to go to the conscience to let them see how they stand before God, and let your love overcome that. So you try to keep deflecting the arguments, not getting an argument with them, and not lose your cool or your or get angry at it. Yeah. So it's tough, but you got to really pray it up before you go out there. Yeah. And especially we, of Reformed theology, need to have some humility about it and know that without God intervening, we'd be in the same exact place as they are. I mean, about to this because of our goodness or our brilliance. That's right. That's right. Very good point. Um, l- let, me, let me, was somebody going to say something? Say oh, sorry. You should have the utmost compassion for them because this is the best they're ever going to have. This is it. I'm Joel Osteen, my best life now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. yeah. How sad is that? Yeah. So, so let me take this a, a little bit further. Um, so think about think about a uh, sort of a, a sound statement of faith. You know, we have we have a, um, a very uh, detailed, thorough doctrinal statement. I mean, it's very detailed, tons of scripture reference and all that. But then there's also just sort of statements of faith that you can find, uh, creedal statements, or these are the things that we believe, those kinds of things. So let me read a a statement of faith to you. What we believe. About the Scriptures, we believe the entire Bible is the inspired word of God, and and that men were moved by the Spirit of God to write the very words of Scripture. Therefore, we believe the Bible is without error. About God, we believe in one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, who became flesh to reveal God to humanity and to become the Savior of the lost world. About humanity, we believe that all people were created in the image of God to have fellowship with Him, but became alienated in that relationship through sinful disobedience. As a result, people are incapable of regaining a right relationship with God through their own efforts. About salvation, We believe that the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross provides the sole basis for the forgiveness of sin. Therefore, God freely offers salvation to those who place their faith in the death and resurrection of Christ as sufficient payment for their sin. About the Christian life, we believe all Christians should live for Christ and not for themselves. By obedience to the word of God and daily yielding to the spirit of God, every believer should mature and be conformed to the image of Christ about the church. We believe that the church is the body of Christ, of which Jesus Christ is the head. The members of the church are those who have trusted by faith the finished work of Christ. The purpose of the church is to glorify God by loving him and making him known to the lost world. So just generally any reservations or I mean you could you know we could tease out little things and say I wonder what they mean about that or that or I mean but does that generally sound Orthodox to you? Yeah. does to me. I mean, yeah. Um, <clears throat> this is the statement of faith for North Point Community Church. Okay? It's available on the website. That's what they believe as a, as a statement. And yet, in recent weeks, there was a dust-up of sorts, if you want to call it that, about some um, statements that the pastor of North Point Community Church, the founding pastor, Andy Stanley, said, that sort of drew out this character from the second century, Marcion, of all things. I mean, people don't even know who Marcion is, and now all of a sudden, a lot of people probably know who Marcion is, right? So here's, here's probably... I'm, I, again, I'm not going to do justice to this whole this whole issue, but I'm, I'm, hopefully it'll be a, a sufficient for um, you know a, a, a basic premise here. Uh, this, I think, is probably uh, the one of the one of the statements. And again, this is in the context of a sermon series that, entitled "Aftermath." You can go listen to it online. Um, but I think this is the statement uh, that had the, was the most controversial in, in the minds of many. This is a quote from the sermon. It's the same God, but he was doing two different things. All that differentiating between those things is so important. Again, in this sermon, I said, hey, it's time that we face the facts and unhitch our faith and our practice from some of these Old Testament values that we can appreciate in their original context, but we really don't have any business dragging them into a modern context. So that's that's. Andy Stanley, uh, in an interview about this unhitching the Old Testament and Old Testament values uh, from Christianity, Um, it was the unhitching the Old Testament statement that that sort of caused a lot of controversy. Um, I want to state for the record that I don't believe that... I listened to a lot of Andy Stanley's sermons, and I listened to this series, and I don't believe for a second that it was a Marcion doctrinal position that he was advocating. Okay? But Al Mohler wrote an article about this, and here's how he commented on it, on this particular statement. He said, to be clear, Andy Stanley does not endorse the full heresy of Marcionism, which was universally condemned by the early church. He actually appears to aim for the heresy of Marcionism. So he's, he's subtly making it a little more subtle. And his hearers are certainly aimed in that direction. He clearly says that God is the same God in both Testaments, but says that he reveals himself in two completely different ways. Just like Marcion, he argues that the church must unhitch, quote-unquote, from the Old Testament. He actually says, quote, I am convinced for the sake of this generation, this is from the message, by the way, I am convinced for the sake of this generation and the next generation, we have to rethink our apologetic as Christians, and the less we depend on the Old Testament to prop up our New Testament faith, the better, because we are in, because of where we are in the culture. So, um, I, I rub shoulders with a lot of people, a, a, a number of people that are part of this church. And so I've done a lot of listening and reading and listening to interviews and everything to try to understand without actually attending the church, which, by the way, caution is needed. We can talk about the words that are spoken, but be careful about having sweeping statements about the actual nature of that church in total. Okay? You've got to be very careful about that. Um, I'm not saying that there's no there's no room for Evaluating and criticizing certain elements, and I'm going to speak a little bit to that in just a moment. But I think we need to be careful. I have to be. I, I've I, I've done a lot of reading and a lot of listening and a lot of watching, and I but I've never ever ever set foot in the door of of any of one of the the locations of this church myself. I, but I know people that are, attend there, and they're they're they seem to be faithful people, love the Lord in general. Um, you know are Committed to a Christian life. Um, you know, there's there's in other words, there's no sense in which there's this there's this adopting of just out and out heresy. There's evidence of genuine faith that you can observe in their lives. Distinctions, yes, but but in general. I think it's important. When thinking about this, and the reason why I'm even talking about this is because we're talking about a very large congregation of people right here in our neighborhood, in our community. So I think it's worthwhile us thinking about this, especially when it rises to this level of, of you know, attaching to heretical teaching from church history that we happen to be talking about as part of our study. Um, in 1995, when North Point was founded... Uh, Andy Stanley said this to a group of the founding members. He said, Atlanta does not need another church. What Atlanta does need is a safe environment where the unchurched can come and hear the life-changing truth that Jesus Christ cares for them and died for their sins. So began North Point Community Church. And you will hear this as, a, as the summary of the tagline for that statement. We want to be a church unchurched people love to attend. So what you find in this particular message and over and over and over again is perfectly in alignment with their philosophy of ministry, their belief about what the purpose of the church is as they see it fleshing out in our modern culture. Um, and, And if you dig a little bit deeper, you begin to find your way toward what is... Orthodox, like a statement of faith like that. Now, That's not to say that this is not fraught with problems. But I think we have to be careful when we start running to name-calling like heretic. Okay? We just need to be thoughtful and careful about that. I will say that another practical point about this is that um, the the sheer... um, the sheer sort of success, I'll just use the term success in kind of the, the broadest sense of this church in terms of growth and number of attendees and, and all that kind of thing, um, centers not in any small way around Andy Stanley and his effectiveness as a communicator. He's very, very gifted. And he's He's sharp, and he knows the scriptures, and he's studied history, and he is he is not um, he is not a slouch when it comes to these things. He's a gifted, obviously a gifted leader. Um, what I have observed, and I, I can't blame him for this necessarily. I mean, I again, we could tease this out in a lot of different ways if time would allow. But my some of my concerns that that are that I think are relevant to us in this discussion. Is that the nature of that kind of ministry is, one, one concern I have is that it, there's risks associated with it in appealing to what I might call a self serving or individualized type of Christianity because the message is very horizontal in its emphasis there 's a very horizontal what do we how do we need to be thinking? what do we need to say how do we need to package what we do so that we can be a church that creates environments that unchurched people love to attend or his his initial vision statement a safe environment for unchurched people whatever safe means i mean I, i'm you know it, the the implications are that there are churches where unchurched people would go into and they immediately feel judged or they immediately feel you know, like they're isolated or if they don't live up to a certain standard, they're no good or whatever. That, that's kind of, the, I think, the gist of, of the message there. But that there's risks there because it, in all of us, we like things to go our way. That's at the core of who we are in our flesh. And I would just encourage you, go and do a very thoughtful review of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And you will see all that you need to see about how when you get to the garden, you had this very simple mandate. Become one flesh, be fruitful and multiply, tend to the garden and work the garden, and care for the garden, be a steward of the garden, and of this one tree you shall not eat, but of all the rest, have at it. And the nuanced lie of something being missing from God's commands and from God's explicit and simple mandates that needed more thought and more reflection and a different course of action led to the fall. I would just say that we are naturally inclined to want to take bits and pieces of something and mix it up with our own predisposed ideas about how we want our life to go, and if we can in some way feel like we're sanctifying it with saving belief, then all the better. And I think that there's risks associated with, with that kind of presentation of, 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 of ministry, of, of teaching, if you will. There's also the risk Huge risks of cultural accommodation in the name of gospel mission. It's like, it's like dancing on the head of a needle. And what I have observed time and time again are people, even though there's a, a, it's a very wide open funnel on the entry point of a ministry of this type, where the focus of the public preaching and teaching that happens on Sundays is oriented explicitly and by design to the unchurched and the dechurched, the people of a mindset that either have walked away from the faith or who have never been exposed to the gospel that 's the intent of the, the preaching ministry in the, in the, in the public facing ministry. Uh, that most people see of that church. It's, it's a stated mission. It's not something that's hidden. It's, and it's, there's rationale behind it that they've thought through. The risk there is that there's all kinds of accommodations to the culture that have become necessary to create this safe environment, to create a place where people who are unchurched love to attend, that I think making that transition into full discipleship becomes very, very difficult. And there's a lot, a lot of people that remain on the fringes and just love it and love being there and kind of have a comfort zone for staying there. So I think that there's a risk, a real profound risk there in taking uh, The Apostle Paul's statements, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. To take that testimony from the Apostle Paul and to um, use it as the informing backdrop for a whole range of accommodations to a modern and fallen and corrupt culture in the name of being all things to all people from a From a full orbed ministry disciple making standpoint, I think that there 's a tremendous amount of risk uh, that that is being kind of exposed day in and day out um, because people can stay in a certain place on the fringes that they really like and they have basically a sanctified worldliness that they can feel good about and, 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 and live in it 's very very very, very dangerous. I do not think that that is what is the mission of that church and I do not think that that is what represents the heart of Andy Stanley. I genuinely believe that he is wanting to make disciples. I just kind of have a fundamental disagreement with his ministry model and his his understanding of what the purpose of the gathered community of faith on the Lord's day is really supposed to be focused on. So we're not talking about, in my view, we're talking about we're talking about shades of what sounds like some heretical you know, um, statements from Marcion, but all you have to do is, is dig a little bit deeper, and you see that's not the case at all. There's, there's, that, that is more characteristic of trying to accommodate to the mind of the unchurched or to the person who would say, I don't believe the Bible's authoritative at all, so don't come at me with the Bible stuff. Now what I would say to that is however the Bible is authoritative and it says of itself that it has the power to completely fillet the heart of man and lay it bare so I don't I think that the other risk here is to um and it's, a theolo- it's, it's driven by, I think, a theological distinction. The other risk here is to begin to believe that too much is riding on the way that I'm presenting the truth rather than the power of the gospel and the truth of God's word itself apart from me. Now that's not to say that we don't need to try to be I mean, the Apostle Paul speaks of that in the passage I just read, that we don't need to think about who we're talking to and what their sort of their context might be for them to be able to understand just the words we're saying and the way that we're approaching a matter. But I, I do have a concern theologically when we start taking on too much responsibility for the power and influence of our own rhetoric as opposed to the power of the gospel itself. For it is the power of God and the salvation to those that believe. That the word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? I mean, those kinds of principles about the word of God um, and its power. I think that the, the quote that I read last time about this, and then we got to bolt out of here, um, is a good jumping off point. We can talk about this maybe another time, too. But Carl Truman, professor of theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, He wrote an article entitled, The Marcians Have Landed, A Warning for Evangelicals. He said this, so what will be the long-term consequences of this Marcionite approach to the Bible? Again, the driving force, I think that the the comparative point for a sort of North Point community kind of philosophy of ministry versus out-and-out denial of the authority and, and connectedness of the Old Testament with the New Testament, which... Which North Point would fully embrace as a, as a matter of belief. They do not separate the two as you know, one's, one's irrelevant and the other's relevant. That's not the, the stated belief of that church. But the point of of sort of similarity is this motivation in their philosophy of ministry to not want to offend the unchurched. And what is more offensive than to be you know talked to about your sin? right? That's that's very offensive to us. We don't want to hear that we're sinners in need of a savior. So you package it differently so it's not so offensive. But he's talking about out-and-out Marcionism here in this article. He says, ultimately I think it will push the God who is there back into the realm of unknowable and make our God a mere projection of our own psychology and our own worship simply into group therapy sessions where we all come together to pretend we are feeling great. This is what I mean by a ministry that allows you to stay on the fringes of just feeling, feeling good about ourselves. We've sort of sanctified our current position. And we just want to be sort of, we just want a, a, a psychological balm for the things that ail us. He says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take that identity away and what do we have? As the Old Testament is the context for the New Testament, so the neglect of Old Testament leaves the New Testament as more or less meaningless. As our reading, our sermons, and our times of corporate worship neglect and sometimes simply ignore the Old Testament, we can expect a general impoverishment of church life and finally a total collapse of evangelical Christendom. Indeed, there are mornings when I wake up and think it's already over and that the church in the West survives more by sheer force of personality, by hype, and by marketing ploys rather than by any higher power. This to me is probably the greatest point of risk i 've had conversations with people, um, in fact, our pastor did a message you might remember uh, I think in two thousand sixteen maybe a couple of years ago uh, in response to a, an earlier message that Andy Stanley preached and I had I ended up having a meeting with school parents with like five school parents, and the meeting was not to discuss the message that Shane preached and the content of it versus the content of Andy Stanley's message, it was a defense of Andy Stanley himself. And so I'm saying this idea of cult of personality, this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians for. Some of you are saying, I am of Paul and I am of Cephas and I am of Apollos and I am of Christ, and you're allowing these divisions to occur. There was a divisive tone in that meeting simply around a person. Not around truth, not around the nature of truth, not around the authority of Scripture in one point or another, but it was purely around that. And So I think that there's, that to me, when you start thinking about the fruit of some of this, um, that should also inform some of your conversations, that there is a tremendous appreciation and, for and even loyalty to a person in this dynamic that's common. So you have to be very mindful of that. And realize that you can cause an offense very very easily it doesn 't mean that that offense might not be you know a result of a, a straightforward conversation i 'm not saying it never needs to happen i 'm just saying that 's kind of the nature of, of what what 's going on here in the end of it all though i I do believe that there is um, there is um, that the Lord is using that ministry fruitfully I believe that people are coming to genuine faith in Christ I believe that people are being discipled in a certain way not the way we would necessarily do it um and even maybe in ways that i would say are, are less than what they should be but i do not want to just completely cast aspersions in a sweeping and irresponsible way um against you know a ministry and i would encourage you to to do your own homework and and really understand it carefully very clear distinctions between our church and and that church Very clear distinctions in our philosophy of ministry. And our Reformed uh, um, positions would make our our, our, a tremendous point of reference for us in how we understand what we're called to in terms of evangelistic witness and a high view of Scripture and holding up the Word of God as the primary um, mode of instruction and discipleship, particularly on Sundays. Very clear differences there. But I also think that we need to be mindful of um, our own... The, the ways that we can be provoked to respond in ways that are either patently inaccurate or certainly uh, not thoughtful and respectful of other people. Okay, I've been all over the place with that, and I know that we've got to go. But um, this is a big discussion, and please let's talk more. I don't want you to be misunderstood. I don't want you to. I don't want this to sound like I'm endorsing a a, a shift in faith community churches' ministry focus. I have clear distinctions of opinion and and even biblical understanding of what the church is supposed to be about that are, that are stark. Um, but I, I, want, I want our response and our thought around it to be measured and, and wise. So that was my, that was my intent.